We all have our likes, and we have some dislikes. Here's my top three likes followed by my top three dislikes. I like vanilla Coke. I like well-manicured golf courses, and I like coffee with my wife. Here are my top three dislikes. Congested freeways, anonymous letters to the pastor, and trips to the dentist. I'm sure you have your list of likes and dislikes. As a matter of fact, even God has a list of things that He loves. He also has a list of things He hates. Of the things God hates, Deuteronomy 16 tells us God hates idolatry. Amos 5 says He hates hollow and insincere worship. Malachi 2 informs us that God hates divorce. Actually, in Proverbs chapter 6, God even makes out His own list of things that He hates. It says, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. On the other hand, though, there are some things that God likes. In Psalm 33, He loves righteousness and justice. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 9, the Lord has loved Israel forever. Malachi 2 not only says that God hates divorce, but He calls marriage the Lord's holy institution which He loves. And don't forget John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves the whole world. That's even you. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, there's one more item to add to God's list of loves. God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word translated cheerful is hilaros, from which we get our English word hilarious. Paul is saying that God loves a hilarious giver. He delights in the person who gets a kick out of giving to him and to people in need. A cheerful giver gets her jollies out of giving. She considers it a thrill, even a buzz. Giving is his idea of a good time. To a cheerful giver, it's fun to support God's work and to meet other people's needs. He even giggles when he drops his offering in the offering box on Sunday morning and gives back to God just a little bit of what God has given to him. Yes, God loves a cheerful giver. And if you're a Christian, you should know this. For you realize the tidal wave of blessing that has rolled over your life. The psalmist says of us, our cup runneth over. In fact, we are so swamped with God's grace, there's got to be a runoff. These blessings have to be vented. The love is so intense, where is the release valve? You see, you can't take in God's mercy over and over and over again and not elicit a response. Paul tells us it's okay to get a little giddy. Don't worry about losing your cool and spilling some emotion, for God loves a hilarious giver. 
And I'm certain one of the reasons that God loves a cheerful giver is that He is one Himself. No one gets more of a rush from giving than God. Listen to this collage of biblical quotes. God delights in mercy. Every good and perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? To Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You see, every job has its likes and its dislikes. Its pros and its cons. In your work, I'm sure there are certain aspects of your job that you enjoy. There are probably other duties that you despise. Let me suggest the same is true for God's job. There are aspects of being God that I'm sure He relishes. While there are other features of being God, I would imagine He doesn't like as much. If I were God, venting my wrath, bringing down judgment on my enemies, putting those little rebels in their place, that'd probably be what I'd enjoy most if I were God. But God is just the opposite. Even now, He's putting off the day of judgment as long as He can in hopes that as many folks as possible will come to know Jesus. God delights in showing mercy. He prefers to forgive. Judgment is the part of His job that He dislikes the most. What God enjoys about being God is giving good gifts and showing favor and blessing us with tokens of His grace and pouring out spiritual riches on those who trust in Him. And because God is such a cheerful giver, whenever He finds one like Him, He wants to bless that person. Now remember what's going on here in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Paul is taking an offering. This portion of the book is actually a first century fundraising letter. He's collecting a relief for the church there in Jerusalem. This church had fallen on hard times. Remember, famine had hit Judea. And many in the church were hungry. They were homeless. Paul thought it would be appropriate if the Gentile churches in the West rallied and offered some financial support for the first church there in Jerusalem. We learned last week that the Corinthians had started collecting this special offering a year earlier. But when it comes to giving, making a promise is always easier than writing a check. Their offering had stalled. And Paul writes now to encourage them to finish. Paul knew that the Corinthians' procrastination to give was an indicator of a deeper spiritual problem in their hearts. And isn't this always the case? Nothing reveals our heart toward God quicker than our attitude toward money. Whenever you go to the doctor for a checkup, what does she do? She starts pressing and poking and prodding. All the while she's asking you, does it hurt? Do you feel any pain? The area where she pokes isn't supposed to hurt. So if you wince, then there's probably something wrong. And the same is true when the pastor starts to talk about giving. If there's a wince, if there's a little pain, then there's probably a problem. A faith that hasn't reached a man's wallet hasn't reached very far into his heart. If you're tight toward God, how can you be tight with God? 
A person who gives hypocritically or who is stingy in their giving or gives only out of compulsion or doesn't give it all doesn't really understand God's blessings. In 2015, Americans spent $240 billion on legalized gambling. Well, at the same time, they gave only $115 billion to their churches. We gambled away over twice as much money as we gave to God. Today, people put more stock in betting on chance than in trusting God. I ran across an even more sobering statistic. If all church members in America were suddenly placed on welfare, yet they tithed their welfare check, gave 10%, the income of our churches would increase 35%. What an indictment. Apparently, very few Christians have discovered the cheerfulness, the hilarity, the sheer joy of giving to God. It's been said, and it is so true, it's impossible to give to God without loving Him. It's possible to give to God without loving Him, but it's impossible to love God without giving to Him. Now, unlike most fundraising letters today, Paul writes his appeal not to pressure the Corinthians. His goal is not to squeeze them for every available dime or to guilt trip them into giving a specific amount. Paul's intent is to simply teach. In chapter 8, he says that we should give. In chapter 9, he now teaches us how to give. And if all the fundraising letters that we received we're in the same spirit as the one Paul writes. They wouldn't immediately get quadded up and thrown into the round file before they're read. No, Paul does great, some great instruction here in chapter 9. The chapter begins, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous or unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago. In your zeal was stirred up the majority. Now realize, Paul had been a shrewd motivator. In chapter 8, the apostle had pointed to the generosity of the Macedonians as an example to the Corinthians. But while he was in Macedonia, he had used Corinth's good intentions to stir up the Macedonian church. He'd found something commendable in both churches. He says, yet I have sent the brethren... And remember the three brothers that Paul sent to collect this offering. We talked about them last week. Paul mentioned Titus, his sole brother. Then he mentioned the famous brother. Then he mentioned the diligent brother. He says, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Now, as we noted last week, The Macedonians, they were dirt poor. They were not very wealthy. And yet they still managed to give to God. In fact, they gave even above what they could afford. Paul's saying now, how embarrassing will it be if I arrive with some ragtag Macedonians in clothes they bought off the rack at the Goodwill, excited about the offering they've collected, only to find you wealthy Corinthians dragging your Louis Vuittons, unwilling to give a dime. We'll all be embarrassed. Then he writes, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time 
and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. He sent these three brothers to avoid this awkward and embarrassing situation, possibility. It would just be a poor witness to show up in Corinth and there'd be no offering. See, Paul had been talking up the church in Corinth. Now he's concerned about them letting him down. And most importantly, Paul is concerned about the attitude behind their giving. He says that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Paul doesn't want anybody to give to God with a grudge. If after all God has done for you, if you have to force yourself to write a check, just keep it in your pocket. God wants us to give because we want to, not because we have to. In the next few verses, verses 6 through 8, Paul's instructions on how to give to God are threefold. He has a word for us before we give. Then he has directions for us as we give. And then he supplies some insight for us after we give. Before we give, as we give, after we give. Let's take them one at a time starting in verse 6. Here's a principle that Paul wants us to consider before we give. He says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now in our text this morning, Paul is going to say a lot to free us up from the pressures and the stresses normally associated with financial giving. He's going to tell us, if you're reluctant to give, then don't give. If you're giving under duress, then don't give. If the preacher's making you feel guilty and applying the financial squeeze, then you don't have to give. If you're giving begrudgingly because you feel like you have to rather than you want to, then don't give. Paul is even going to tell us not to let someone tell us how much we should give. The amount of your giving is a matter that's strictly between you and God. Paul's intent in this passage is to free us up from all the expectations and legalizations and regulations so that we can give for the sheer, unadulterated joy of giving. And at this point, you could be plotting. Okay, that sounds great. How much can I give and still give cheerfully? Well, maybe I can play it safe. I'll give $2. I figure I can give $2 and give that cheerfully. And maybe that $2 is all you should give. But there's one more important consideration to factor into the equation. For Paul shares an important principle here in verse 6. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Before you give, know that your gift to God is not just a gift, it is an investment. Realize, theoretically speaking, it's impossible for us to give anything to God. If you're a Christian, everything you have belongs to God in the first place. When you give to God, you're just giving back to Him what He's already given to you. In fact, jump down to verse 10, and notice how Paul refers to our offering. He says, Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food 
Supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Paul refers to our money as seed. The money you give to God is the seed that you sow. Place a donation in that offering box. And you're not giving anything away. You're not losing anything. You are investing in the kingdom of God. It's a payment that will one day return to you a rich dividend. The seed you sow in God's work is going to produce a bountiful harvest. Now here Paul applies an agricultural principle to our spiritual giving. The farmer knows that if he sows a little, he's going to reap a little. But if he sows a lot, he's going to reap a lot. And the same is true in a person's giving to God. Before you give, you need to realize, give a little, get a little. Give a lot, get a lot. It's a simple principle. You reap in proportion to what you sow. The degree to which you give is the degree to which you'll get. I'll never forget one of our new member orientations. It was years ago. A guy walked into the room, had this grim look on his face. He was clutching his Bible in his hand. And you could tell he was geared up for a red-hot argument. In fact, he had dozens of little pieces of paper hanging out of the ends of the pages of his Bible. I mean, he had marked his Bible with ammunition. Well, after my opening remarks, I opened up the floor for questions. This guy's hand immediately shot up. Like a rattlesnake coiled for a strike. Through clenched teeth, he asked me, he said, I want to know what you believe. Should we tithe our gross income or our net income? I got tickled. I started laughing. I said, I don't care what you give. That's between you and God. Just do it cheerfully. But then I added, how much you give depends on how much you want to be blessed. Do you want to be blessed netly or grossly? (laughs) See, it's a law. Like any other natural law. You reap in proportion to what you sow. A well-known Christian philanthropist was once asked, How is it that you give away so much and yet you have so much left over? The man replied, I shovel out and God shovels in and God has the bigger shovel. Indeed. I like John Bunyan's little jingle. A man there was and they called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. Why? Because you can't outgive God. He's got the bigger shovel. Proverbs 11 verse 24 puts it this way. There is one who scatters yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. In essence, hoard your money and you'll lose it. But give it to God. Invest it in His kingdom and watch it grow. I heard of a pastor who had his congregation all stand. He told each person to reach out and take the wallet out of the person in front of you out of their back pocket. The pastor then said to his flock, Now open up your neighbor's wallet and give like you've always wanted to give but never felt you could afford. How's that? Why don't we all stand? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But you will reap in the same proportion that you sow. And the key word here is proportion. You see, God looks not on the portion of the gift, its amount. He looks on the proportion, what's left over after you give. 
See, a wealthy man with billions of dollars can give $10 million and yet give sparsely. Reminds me of the tycoon whose son always heard him pray for the needs of the missionaries overseas. One day he said to his father, You know, Dad, if you'll give me, my, if you'll give me your checkbook, I can answer your prayers. A rich man can give $1, $1 million and it be given sparingly. Whereas a poor man can give 20 bucks and his gift be bountiful. Remember the widow in the temple? She gave two mites. Just two mites. That was less than a penny. But they were mighty mites because they represented all that she had. That's how Jesus saw them in Luke 21 verse 3. He pointed to her example. This poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty has put in all the livelihood that she had. The woman didn't give much, but she gave her all. You see, before you give, remember you reap in proportion to what you sow. Give generously and regularly and unselfishly to the Lord and you will reap an abundance. But Paul also has a few words that we need to be aware of as we give. Notice verse 7 instructs us. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now first, Paul tells us not to give grudgingly or of necessity. If your heart is adverse to giving, then don't give. If you feel coerced into giving, then don't give. When you give, it should always be done cheerfully. A church bulletin once printed this statement. God loveth a cheerful giver, but he accepteth from a grouch. That might be funny, but hey, that's not really true. We instruct our Sunday counters, the ones that count the offering, if they spot a check where the handwriting looks forced, you know, where you, you did it, you know, with a bad attitude and you almost went all the way through the check with your pen, when someone scribbled too hard or drugged their pen across the paper like they were doing it reluctantly. Hey, we don't want a re reluctant, begrudging gift. We'll just give it back to you. I'll never forget when my son Mac was five years old. His granddad gave him a dollar. Mac made a wonderful decision, especially for a five-year-old. He chose to give it to Jesus. We went back to the offering box that Sunday morning and he stuck it in the slot. But just before he let go, he stalled. He had second thoughts. Man, a whole dollar represents big bucks to a young man who's just five. He asked me, he said, Dad, will I go to the devil if I don't give this dollar? I assured him, I said, Mac, Jesus will still love you even if you don't give. He stuck the dollar back in his pocket and he ran off. <laughs> He had yet to learn the joy of giving to God. Now at 25, I asked him the other day if he's learned. He said he had. Some folks, though, never do. Once a man confessed, my pastor says we need to give until it hurts. For me, it hurts just to think about giving. Well, if that's how you feel, it's best for you not to give at all. You're still going to heaven. You're still forgiven. But if you can't give to Jesus out of a thankful, joyful heart, just keep your money. It won't help you or God. 
I think this principle of joyous giving is true, not just in the area of our finances, but with any gift we offer to God. Our time, our talents, our service. If you wake up on a Sunday morning moaning and groaning that you got to go down to that church and teach those snotty-nosed little kids again this week, then you shouldn't be teaching. If you can't do it cheerfully, then don't do it at all. The same goes for leading worship or ushering or working in the brook or even delivering the sermon. If you can't give it to God cheerfully, then don't give. As my man B.B. King used to sing, The thrill is gone. The thrill is gone away. Oh, the thrill is gone, baby. The thrill is gone. (laughs) If the thrill is gone, baby, and you can't give with a cheerful attitude, then slow it down, take some time, and rediscover God's amazing grace. Mull over His mercy for a while until your heart is flush again with thanksgiving and praise. Why? God loves a hilarious giver. In verse 7, Paul says that we're to give, not to give grudgingly or of necessity. That means that we're not to give under pressure or under duress. And this is where a lot of pastors I know need to repent in sackcloth and ashes. I've heard of pastors who passed the plate twice because they didn't get what they wanted the first time. That is inexcusable. That is pastoral malpractice. I remember a few years ago, a big-time evangelist, he said that God had told him that he was going to take him home if he didn't raise his financial goal. God was kidnapping him, holding him for ransom, unless you gave. My attitude was, if that's what he's saying, God needs to take him home. He's misrepresenting God. And he's manipulating people. I get weary of pastors who sing a sad song for God. Oh, if you don't give to God, His work is going under. God is going belly up. Poor God needs your money. They give the impression that an all-wise God doesn't know how to manage His money. Are you kidding me? As if God's always teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, needing us to bail Him out? Mark Twain once went to church and he was planning on giving an offering, he said. But after sitting through a high-pressure appeal for funds, he was so disgusted with what he heard when the plate passed, rather than giving his offering, he kept it and he actually helped himself to a few dollars that morning. Just took it right out of the plate. According to a friend of mine, there is a church in Alabama that bills its members for unpaid tithes. That is shameful. That makes my blood boil. Let me set the record straight. God doesn't need your money. His resources are unlimited. God is fully capable of supporting His work. And if you don't give, God will raise up others who will give and who will receive His blessing. And yet at the same time, God loves you. And He wants you to experience the joy of giving. He wants you to participate in His kingdom. And He is even willing to bless you if you do. I like something else Paul says here in verse 7. As we give, each of us should give as He purposes in His heart. In other words, the details of our giving should be worked out in our heart beforehand. 
The amount of the gift, the frequency of the gift, the method you give, the direction of the gift are all issues over which God will deal with you individually. Unlike Old Testament times, today there's no longer a law that governs our giving. It's a personal decision between you and God. Do you want to be blessed a lot or a little? Giving is a choice. People ask, well, Sandy, if that's true, then what about the tithe? Should we tithe? Of course, the word tithe, it means tenth. And since Abraham's day, the tenth has been the percentage that God has used to guide his people in their giving. The tithe sort of works like a flat tax. It's 10% across the board. No special deductions, no write-offs. It's one size fits all. It's equitable, fair, it's an impartial way to give. And let me say, I think the Holy Spirit is partial to the tithe. God has led me personally, and He has led countless other Christians throughout the ages to tithe regularly. There was once a fellow here at Calvary Chapel He'd just gotten saved. He knew nothing of the Bible, really, or of the Christian life. But I knew he loved Jesus. The Lord had saved him, and he was eager to serve. I'll never forget, he came up to me one Sunday, and he said, Pastor Sandy, I believe the Lord wants me to start tithing. He says, I'm not sure what it is, but I just got to, Lord, put it on my heart to start tithing. I'm thinking, tithing? What in the world is he doing? And he hit me. He means tithing. Then it dawned on me that the Holy Spirit had put this on it. He didn't even know what it was. But the Holy Spirit had put it on his heart. He felt like he needed to obey. Now, am I telling you that you need to tithe? Well, maybe. I don't know. It is not for me to tell you how to give. That is between you and God. But if I, what if I told you to give 10% and then God told you to give 20%? I'd be selling you short. That's why I don't want to tell you what to give. But I do know this. God does want us to give regularly and sacrificially. So that if He doesn't direct you otherwise, then why not tithe? It's a trustworthy God. And again, give as you purpose in your heart. The implication is that all our financial giving should be preceded by purpose. In other words, don't give haphazardly. Our giving to God is so vital that it shouldn't be left up to random impulses or whatever strikes you that morning. It needs to be thought out, whether it's 5% or 10% or 15%, whatever and however you give should be committed to in advance. Every day, twice a day, at predetermined intervals, I brush my teeth. My personal hygiene isn't determined by whim and by impulse. I have a schedule for toothbrushing. And because of it, you can inspect me at any time. And you won't see any food between my teeth. But don't look at my office. Most of the time it's cluttered, dirty, filthy. And there's a reason why. I don't have a regular time set aside to clean my office like I do my teeth. I do it on a whim. Or when I have some extra time, which usually amounts to once a year. This is why a tithe is so helpful. It is a regular amount at a regular interval. And Paul's point is this. Some tasks 
don't get done unless you're committed to doing them regularly. Giving to God is one of those tasks. Well, finally here, notice Paul explains what we can expect after we give. Verse 8 promises. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. God always sees to it that a cheerful giver will have plenty to give. In Psalm 37, verse 25, an elderly King David, he offers some reflection on his long life. He says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. And I want to second David's observations. In my 58 years, I have never seen anyone who gave to God regularly end up in the poorhouse. Never. Never. Luke 6, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. In the Old Testament, giving to God revolved around the concept of the first fruits. Sacrifice an animal and it needed to be the first and the best of the flock. The pick of the litter. If you gave produce, it was to be from the initial sweep of the harvest. God, honored, God was honored with the first of the flock and the first of the crop. Thanks to God came before your own needs. I was reading this past week at Thanksgiving, the Butterball Turkey Company, they set up a talk line to answer consumer questions about preparing holiday turkeys. As a matter of fact, once a woman called and she asked about cooking a turkey that had been in the bottom of her freezer for 23 years. That's right, 23 years. The Butterball representative told her that the turkey would be safe to eat if the freezer had been below zero for the entire 23 years. The Butterball rep warned her, though, that even if the turkey had been under the freezer and it was safe to eat, its flavor would probably have deteriorated to such a degree that it wouldn't really be worth eating. Well, the caller, she replied, that's what I thought. We'll give the turkey to our church. Don't give God your scraps. Don't give Him your leftovers and your rejects. Paul is telling us we need to give God our best. This is why my offering, it always comes from the first fruits. Whenever I go to pay my bills at the first of the month, I write my check out to God first. It's my way of saying to Him that all I have belongs to Him. The way I give to God is an expression of my faith to Him. When I give Him the first fruits, I'm really saying that the rest of my income belongs to Him as well. When I give God my 10%, in essence, I'm saying, God, I believe you can do more with 90% than I can do with 100%. And friends, that's the safest bet you'll ever make. And notice, if you trust God in the area of your money... His blessings will overflow into all areas. Four times in verse 8, Paul uses the phrase all. He says, always having all sufficiency in all things. Honor God in your finances 
and God will bless you in all areas of your life. Perhaps He'll restore that friendship or heal that hurt or create joy in your heart or relieve a burden. God has lots of ways to give back to His kids when they give to Him. Now in verse 9, Paul continues, as it is written in Psalm 112, verse 9, He has dispersed abroad, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now may He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, which you are enriched, in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. The offering collected for the church in Jerusalem will not only meet their physical needs, it will bless them spiritually. The Jews in Judea will be grateful to God as a result. And you know, this should be the motivation behind all of our giving, not only to meet needs, but to bring glory to God. And then in verse 13, while through the proof of this ministry, they glorified God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Corinth's gift to the Jerusalem church was an answer to the prayers that the Jews had been praying for the Corinthians. The Jews had been praying that the Gentiles would love God and experience spiritual growth. Now this offering was the answer to their prayers. And then Paul concludes chapter 9. I love how he does it. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. How fitting that Paul wraps up his discussion on giving by reminding the Corinthians of the greatest gift of all, God's indescribable gift which is Jesus. See, all our gifts pale in comparison to God's gift to us. Now, please know the motivation behind my message this morning. I don't want anybody to think that the elders ran me out here today to hammer at you for giving so we could pay a few bills. Don't you think that? There's no crisis. We're not worried about getting paid this week. Some weeks we are, but not this week. Besides just teaching through this book, here is my motivation for this morning's message. I am really hoping, I am really praying that here at Calvary Chapel, God will assemble a whole church of hilarious givers. So that every offering, so that every act of service is done cheerfully. And if that happens, what a place to go to church. God loves a cheerful giver. Are you one?